We're now talking about a booster shot, right? So now we're going to have to go back and get booster shots now to go along with the actual vaccinations. And the question really here is, is that, you know, this is potentially one of the things that may weigh on markets, right? This whole COVID idea is what kind of shut down the economy back in March of 2020, had that big sell-off. Nowadays, really not really not weighing much on the markets. Markets really not paying much attention at all to the COVID Delta variant, um, not any real worry here of a slowdown in the economy, but yet the actual economic data is slowing down. M uh, mortgage applications are slowing down sharply, seeing a lot of decline in the housing market. Uh, auto sales are beginning to, to peak and turn over. Retail sales yesterday much weaker than expected. So again, really kind of no matter where we look at across the board, economic data is slowing down rather sharply and particularly at a time as stimulus is now fading from the system, unemployment benefits are running out. Um, we did extend the eviction moratorium until October. That's going to be a question if they can keep extending, you know, how long they can keep extending the eviction moratorium. But there are large amounts of dollars of individuals that are behind mortgage rent. So there's going to be a lot of money coming due uh, kind of all at once in, in terms of rent payments when that moratorium comes off. So again, there's some real impacts that are weighing on the markets right now. And as this concern over the Delta variant continues to rise, you know, there is a risk here that we may see a tailoring off of consumption by retail, uh, by, uh, by individuals, because they become more concerned about going out, going shopping, going to restaurants or malls or whatever it is. Um, we just saw some, some early recovery in those areas the question is, of course, is now will the you know will a, a another surge in the virus begin to contract that behavior? Again, this is all about consumer confidence. And the one thing we did see here just recently, and I've got an article coming out on this on Friday, a very sharp drop in consumer confidence. Consumer confidence, as measured by the University of Michigan, has now dropped back to the same level that we were back at the bottom of the decline in consumer confidence in March of 2020. Now, there's historically a very high correlation between consumer confidence in the markets. That's not really showing up right now. Markets still remain exceedingly bullish here. Nobody wants to be left out of the potential gains of the markets. In fact, yesterday, markets did sell off, touched the 20-day moving average, and had a very strong level of buying in terms of money flows yesterday. Money flows now at the highest level that we've seen really since the peak that we saw in the markets kind of back in April. So again, lots of money continued to flow into the market. And despite that we actually registered a money flow sell signal yesterday, money flows are exceedingly strong here. So again, every little dip gets bought here as investors don't want to sit on the sidelines. So again, this suggests that there's no reason to be risk averse at this point in terms of the markets and, and investments, that everything in the market continues to kind of function normally. Of course, there's still the $120 billion a month from the Federal Reserve, but even that is now potentially coming at risk here as sharply rising rents are starting to impact the inflation numbers. We looked, uh, we talked on Monday about the spread between the producer price index and the consumer price index. That spread is the widest on record. This is all pushing the Fed now to start potentially tapering. And in fact, there's a lot more talk here recently from Fed members and potentially, you know, we'll, we're starting to see the media, the financial media pick this up.
is that we could see as early as September, the Fed really starting to talk about having to taper quantitative easing because of inflationary pressures, because we are approaching full employment. And again, this has been the, this has really been the strong suit of the markets here. Why do you invest in the markets here that are grossly overvalued? Because the Fed's doing QE, right? That's been the excuse. The Fed's, the, the Fed's QE is supportive of asset prices. So investors stay, stay long markets, at least for now. But again, we're starting to see uh, potential here for a real change. Now, the, uh, again, markets haven't picked up on this at all. As I said yesterday, money flows continue to be very strong here, very positive, um, even though volume of the money flows have been weaker. So again, markets have been rallying and really finding support on weaker volumes, but the buying pressure remains there and remains exceptionally strong right now. In other words, every little decline is being bought. There's a lot of money sitting on, uh, you know, kind of sitting there waiting to come in and people are just doing this as fast as they can. So lots of buying pressure. Sellers really not willing to sell here, here either. And that lack, that dearth of sellers and, uh, you know, a, a large group of buyers keeps these money flows here very positive. Uh, again, you know, when we take a look at that, we have to come back and also uh, equate that back to what's happening in, the, in what we call a risk-off sector, and that's bonds. And again, bonds continue to rally here. So again, as interest rates continue to decline, and as we continue to see uh, money flow into fixed income in particular, that risk-off trade continues to suggest that, that professional investors, anyway, are becoming a little bit more risk-averse of the markets. Retail investors still very aggressive about markets. But when we take a look, really, at consolidated equity positions, really across the board, investors, both professional and retail, very long equity right now. So again, that's fine because markets are doing okay. There's nothing to worry about. But there is, again, that potential risk. We've got a lot of things starting to change below the surface. You know, is the Delta variant going to be the thing that triggers a market decline? Probably not, because we already all know about it. The markets know about it. The markets aren't responding to it at all at this point. Um, we're just seeing more and more money really kind of just hiding inside the major tech stocks. And that's really where money's been gravitating to. If you take a look really across the board, the breadth of the market has remained very weak. We've had very small pockets of support, either, either, either it being healthcare or technology in particular, large sectors of the market financials have been kind of rotating leadership and that's been helping support markets. But again, it's not been a real broad advance in the markets. If you take a look at the underlying breadth of the market, it remains very weak here. But again, this is just kind of the psychology of the market itself right now. Again, nobody wants to be out of the market because nobody wants to miss out on further gains. But you've got to pay attention to what's happening here. Economically, the data is weakening across the board. Retail sales, we're seeing consumption starting to slow down. Confidence is declining. Economic growth is weaker than expected on many fronts. That's going to be the thing that ultimately starts to undermine earning strength. And we're beginning to already see expectations being ratcheted down for earnings as we move forward. So all those potentially can disrupt markets. But again, you still need that catalyst. The one thing that investors aren't expecting, what's that going to be? I don't know. It's not going to be the Delta variant. It's not Afghanistan. We already know all that stuff. What we don't know is potentially what happens with the, with the debt ceiling. That's coming up. That's a big vote coming up. We'll talk about that as well this morning. Got a lot of things to cover this morning with Danny Ratliff. Stick around. More of The Real Investment Show coming up right after the break. 
you know, August tends to be one of the weaker months of the year, but so far it has not been. Um, now that again, the you know people tend to mis misconstrue what that means when you say it's one of the weaker months. It doesn't mean it has to be negative. Just returns in the month of August and September tend to be weaker than the other months of the year. So most of the months of the year tend to be positive on average. And so it's not surprising that you have a couple of months where returns are a lot weaker. August, September tend to be those months. Doesn't mean it has to be negative. And again, so far in the month, we really haven't made a lot of progress here. Um, so it is weaker in terms of, of that kind of nomenclature, right? So the return is weaker for the month of August, but we, have just ha we haven't had a negative sell-off yet. And again, doesn't mean that can't happen. We just haven't had it yet. And as I was saying here just a second ago, there's just a lot of individuals that are afraid of missing out on the markets, right? And and look, and, and this really puts professional investors into that whole same category because we're in the same position. We have to remain invested in the markets right now too because the markets are going up. We're trying to do it in a manner where we're doing it with the least amount of risk possible, but we have to make returns for our clients. And so, you know, we've got a benchmark that we've got to meet every year. We've got hurdle rates that clients need us to meet every year. So we've got these goals that we have to meet every year. So we have to remain invested. And, you know, even though all the data suggests that we should be grossly underweight equities at the moment, what's happening in markets tells us that we have to remain invested. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very difficult position to be in uh, for investors, managers alike, but it's just something that we have to deal with. It's one of those periods in the markets. And, and again, this is just kind of where we are um, currently, and, and we'll just have to keep working through this kind of day-to-day -day watching you know, things as we kind of go along. Again, this is why we watch money flows so, so closely is because money flows are very positive. It means there's a lot of buying sentiment out there. More people want to buy than people want to sell. That keeps prices elevated. You know, there's this, um, you know, kind of this idea, there's all this money sitting on the sideline just waiting to come in. That's, that's, that's a false statement because for every buyer, there has to be a seller. It just depends on at what price that transaction occurs. And when you've got more people wanting to buy and fewer people wanting to sell, that keeps prices elevated. That's where we are in the markets right now. Just lots of enthusiasm and really more of a concern about potentially missing out, right? The market just keeps going up. I can't be out. But as I said, there's lots of warning signs here you need to be paying attention to. I mean, economic growth is weakening. Retail sales are weakening. I mean, the very drivers of the economy, personal consumption expenditures are weakening. These are the very drivers of economic growth, earnings, and sales, and revenue for companies. These things are starting to, to weaken. And so these are the things you need to be paying attention to. Does this mean markets are going to crash tomorrow? Absolutely not. But don't discount the risk. That's what we're talking about here. Good morning, Danny. Welcome to the show. How are you? He's doing well. I'm, gonna, I'm going to translate his sign language this morning for him. So... <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> so, you know, that's an interesting sentiment and point that you make, though, on cash on hand. But, you know, what about all the corporations not necessarily going out and, you know, sitting on a lot of cash, but looking to, you know, build more factories who are actually putting back in R&D uh, stock buybacks? Could that drive some of that sentiment as well? Well, a lot of it, it you know, uh, you know, talking about stock buybacks, you know, stock buybacks are at a record right now. Buyback, uh, buyback announcements are at a record. 
Um, and that, so that certainly is one of the supports of asset prices. Absolutely. It's, it's more buying, it's more buying in the markets, right? So more demand to buy versus sell. So that certainly elevates prices. And, you know, stock buybacks have been a, a big, a big driver of asset prices over the course of the last few years. In fact, in 2018, 2019, in particular, uh, buybacks netted out more, uh, roughly about 100% of all the buying in the market. So just, that's just how big it's been. Now that doesn't that doesn't help individual investors. You know, people say, "Oh, well, stock buybacks are return of capital to investors." No, it's not. Um, if you own shares of Apple stock and Apple buys back stock, nobody sends you a check, right? Nobody's returning your capital. Um, the only way you benefit from a stock buyback is to sell your shares, <laughs> and so really, the only people selling shares are the insiders of companies, which you know buybacks have made executives fabulously wealthy, right? And this is the, the whole wealth gap we talk about. The top one, five, and 10% of the economy, mostly your executives of corporations, have made a tremendous amount of money from this. But again, those only hold up for so long. The first thing that happens when the economy starts to weaken and show real signs of weakness, and when retail sales slow down, when um, um, personal consumption expenditures slow down, and these things begin to reverse, the first things companies do is go, well, I better hold on to my cash because I may need it buybacks slow down, R&D slows down. And, and let's talk about R&D. It's a great point, right? Where's R&D going, right? It's not really going into building new, new plants. We're, not, we're yeah. not building more manufacturing facilities. We're automating a lot of stuff to reduce what? Labor yeah. and reduce yeah. the cost of labor. And, and we've seen a tremendous amount of R&D uh, and really CapEx primarily has been in technology companies increasing automation, those type of things to reduce overall labor costs. Which isn't that's, great that's for good, employment. No, that's a good point. And, and, you know, you can build these big factories, but if you can't get anybody to come to work, it's a mute point. <laughs> yeah. So you got a couple of stories to get into. A sneaky move by Democrats on uh, taxes. What's happening there? I think, you know, some of the bigger things that we're looking at is the repeal of the salt tax. And this would be something that would actually be good for a lot of people. Unfortunately, it's going to be, um, you know, the average Joe, at least a sentiment that they've been trying to go after, you know, the, to really help the, that segment of the population do better with taxes, it's it's not necessarily going to help, right? So currently- well, well, let, let's, roll, let's roll back here for just one second here so and explain what the right. SALT tax is first. That's exactly where I was going. Okay. So so the state and local taxes, so that's going to be your, your state taxes, your municipality taxes that you're going to pay, school board uh, or, or your school district, things of that nature. So currently you can only- deduct up to ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars it used to be if you itemize your taxes you could deduct up to uh, your income limits so what they've done and this hurts particularly people in the northeast where home prices are much higher you have a much higher you know you do have that state and local income tax to a much bigger degree than some of the southern states or your more red states so what democrats are saying is that this unfairly hurt their constituents so they're going back and they're going to they're discussing in this new tax bill they're going to repeal that well which yeah, no, and that's and that's not surprising. But what everybody needs to understand, and this is the important thing, is states like Texas, as an example, which has no state income tax, subsidizes the income tax of states like California because they have a state income tax, state and local income tax, that they get right. refunded from their federal taxes. And, and most people don't understand this, is that if you live in California, you get, the, the, and until the Trump passed the SALT tax, which was a brilliant thing to do, 
red states like Texas, Florida, others that don't have an income tax, we've been subsidizing their federal income taxes for years. And, you know, now it's a, now it's a level playing field. Everybody's kind of paying the same thing. And it, look, if your state wants to charge your state income tax because you decide to live in California where, you know, they, they have a lot of liberal left policies that require a lot of funding, taxpayer funding to support, nothing wrong with that. That's your choice. But don't penalize Texans and, and Floridians, as an example, to subsidize those really misaligned spending policies. But that's exactly what's happening. And, and of course, they don't like it, right? <laughs> you know, they're now actually having to pay for the stuff that they do in California and up in the Northeast. They're having to pay for those things. And now they don't like it. But, you know, what, what, what's the surprise there, right? Well, the argument is that it's not a level playing field in the sense that if you've lived somewhere for a long period of time, you have an expectation of what you can and can't spend. And with much higher prices along the coast, they're being they're being hurt unfairly. Well, yeah. But why, so, again, why do you have much higher prices along the coast? Why do you pay four dollars a gallon in gas in California versus two dollars and 50 cents a gallon in Texas? Because you've got to subsidize all the other spending policies that they want to have. And again, there's nothing wrong with that. If you want to have, you know, these policies of supporting liberal agendas, that's okay. If you like progressive government agendas, that's fine. It requires a lot of taxpayer money to fund those things. And if you want to live there and, and support and pay for those, great. Your gas is going to be $4 a gallon. That's the choice you make. Don't penalize you know, other states that don't have those policies to pay for yours. That's the point here. No, that, that, and that's a fair point. I think that, but this is one of the things that's trying to be, you know, it's going to be very stealth. Like you're probably not going to hear a whole lot about no. it because they don't want to raise a red flag saying, Hey, we're going to help out the wealthy here because let's face it. The people that are going to benefit are the people who are itemizing, which is going to be that top band of income earners. Sure. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's in that, in in this the irony of the whole thing, right? We need to tax the wealthy more, but let's pass let's pass legislation that benefits them the most, right? But this has been oh, like, this, and that's vote. and that's not Republican or Democrat, by the way. That's both parties. So, oh yeah, for sure. But it, it certainly looks good towards their constituents or donors, for that that sure. matter. Absolutely, uh, the people who are going to give them money. So, so uh, yeah. <laughs> so what does that is that have any impact really on you know? Texas, uh, as an example, here in Houston and Austin, uh, does the repeal of the salt tax have any real impact on them? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be good for people, you know, who have higher property taxes. Um, you're going to be able to deduct more of that, um, you know, which is one thing we do have here. We don't have that state income tax, but property taxes are much higher. So that's going to be for high income earners, people that are going to be able to itemize. I think that's going to be a nice feather in your cap. Um, so certainly something that will be utilized in the future. I know many people were, were disappointed when it was taken away. And in fact, a lot of people, but the other aspect of it was, is that one thing Trump did was he doubled the standard deduction. Right. So a lot of people who were itemizing actually were kind of stuck in that window where, well, you know what, I was itemizing, but I don't need to anymore because we can just use our standard deduction because we're right underneath that, that mark. Right. Well, you know, and one thing they could really do to help most Americans right now is bring back the ability to deduct credit card interest like we used to have. So <laughs> a lot oh, of that, Americans. That's a whole other point. Yeah, Americans could really use that one. <laughs> All right. Be right back after the break. Um, Kathy Woods got into a little bit of a heated debate with Michael Burry uh, yesterday over Twitter talking about, uh, well, space technology. We'll talk about that with Danny Ratliff right after the break. Don't go away. 
you know, talking about this uh, repeal of the salt tax and all this. It's interesting. You know, we've had a big influx of Californians coming into Texas because they don't like those higher taxes. I've noticed the license plates. Yeah. yeah. So you notice that, right? Of course, they're coming here because, you know, they think it's a uh, you know, lower income tax. And I'm, so I'm wondering if this, you know, repeal of the salt tax will keep them in California. Because, I, I mean, I there's, you know, a few times on the show, I've done my best impression of <laughs> Vice President Harris. Do not come. <laughs> Do not come from California. Yeah. <laughs> we have plenty of people here. We don't need any more. <laughs> so, anyway, be interesting to see if it changes that. Um, all right. Uh, just for the break, talk a little bit about uh, this. <laughs> a couple of days ago here, Michael Burry, who is famous for The Big Short. If you ever saw the movie The Big Short, uh, book written or read the book by Michael Lewis, it details the meltdown of the mortgage market in 2008. Michael Burry was one of the early guys that saw this coming and took on massive bets against the mortgage market. And it, it's, it's an interesting story because this is a guy that was convicted of his thought process. I mean, he was he was not going to stop from it. He took a beating on his positions because the major banks were propping stuff up, mismarking stuff, doing a lot of things to try to keep the game going as long as possible. And he was taking a huge beating in this, but he held, he, he kept to his convictions. And ultimately, when the mortgage market collapsed, made out like big, right? Um, you know, it's interesting because he's now taken a big short position against ARK Investments, and that's Kathy Wood and the and her group of ETFs called ARK Innovation Funds, etc. And they got into a big battle because he's shorting against her innovation ETFs, particularly um, her investments into space and other innovative technologies because of really a lack of value. In these and and again, a lot of these companies, when you look at them, they do not make money. We've had a rash number of companies come public this year, in particular, that have no revenue, and this is problematic. This is the type of thing that you see that Wall Street does at the peak of markets, and and particularly the peaks of extremely bullish markets, where. Wall Street is trying to get as much product out to the street as possible so they can capitalize on those investments. Again, you know, Wall Street's the one funding a lot of these early stage startups. And when the market's hot like it is now and people are willing to buy anything at any price, they go, hey, time to capitalize. And they push these stocks out public. And, and, and again, the retail investor is cannon fodder for Wall Street, always has been. You are the comp you are the group as a retail investor, you are the person that Wall Street dumps their product on. You're the bag holder for Wall Street. And that's always been the case. That's not new. This has always been the case. It's just most retail investors don't realize this. They just buy stuff thinking that, well, Wall Street told me it's a good deal. Of course they told you it's a good deal. They want they want to sell you the car, right? So of course it's a great car. Um but again, so you wind up holding this, they exit it early and for a reason. And again, this, you have to remember this with IPOs, the reason they're IPOing these companies is how they get paid, right? It's their investment banking money. So Kathy Wood basically and, and Michael Burry got into a bit of debate, turn it over to Danny, let him fill you in on the details. Danny, go ahead. How did this, uh, how did this play out? 
know, obviously he's taken a short against ARK Innovative ETFs and, and some of her funds. And so, you know, interesting thing about Kathy Wood is that several years ago, she, was, she wasn't a household name in the investment community. And she has really gained a lot of traction. Her funds have grown, you know, and, and obviously for good reason, as she's done extremely well. But like you mentioned, this is one of those areas that it, Wall Street has built something that people think they need and they want. And she has a good strategy, but her argument is against Michael Burry, and like, Burry is like you mentioned, is that there's a fundamental need. There are some fundamentals here. So I thought, you know what? This is kind of interesting. What? Let's look in behind, underneath the hood, see what she's invested in. And you know, look, some of these investments we've been way wrong on in the sense, like Tesla. I know we give Tesla a hard time, mm -hmm. but. From a fundamental perspective, you look at what J.P. Morgan, what Morgan Stanley, most of these big analysts and, and big firms have came back and set their price targets closer to eighty-five to ninety-five dollars versus you know its its lofty price of where it is, mm -hmm. and that's ten percent of her portfolio. Right. Um, you start looking underneath there, and you could see for good reason why somebody who does believe and say, you know what, this has gone on long enough and can only go on so much longer, and in his instance, he's been really right. But her argument has been that there's fundamental value in these innovative, disruptive technologies. And I think there is to some extent. But when somebody pulls the rug out from underneath it, this is going to get hurt pretty, pretty bad. I mean, there's a point this year where these funds were down about 30 percent. Mm -hmm. um, she's lagging the market considerably, as we've seen, you know, value come back into vogue a tad bit. You know, we've seen that sector rotation. And so. I'm really going to keep an eye on this and see how this one plays out. <laughs> well, it is interesting. I mean, you know, and, and we saw this back in the late 90s. And, and again, it's interesting because, you know, Kathy's Wood, Kathy Wood's arguments about some of these companies are like, oh, they're innovation. And she told Michael Burry, he's like, oh, you don't really understand value, you know, the value of innovation and, and, and the value of these companies, as you said, you know. But what Michael Burry is saying is saying, hey, I've seen this before. And and again, if we go back to 1999, you could have built the ARK Investment Fund in 1999 of a lot of companies. And in that basket, we would have had Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Yahoo, you know, um, and um, several other companies, right? At that time, we would have probably had Lucent Technologies, Global Crossing, Enron, because uh, these were the cutting-edge, innovative development companies. And despite the fact that these stocks were cutting-edge and development companies, they all lost 30 40 50% of their value during the dot-com crash. Now, out of that basket that we would have owned, yes, there were some survivors, you know, Amazon, Apple, the majority of the gains for Apple, Amazon, Microsoft occurred after 2008. <laughs> so these companies went nowhere for basically a decade. And then after 2008, that's where really, uh, and when we started into QE, that's really where a lot of these companies made the majority of their gains over the course of the last decade. And that's where a lot of money has been made. But people forget about the fact that these companies lost a lot of value. Uh, during the dot-com crash. And again, with Kathy Woods, she's got some companies in her portfolio that will likely do very well. They'll, there's probably one or two of those companies in there that'll be the next quote-unquote Apple, Microsoft, whatever it is. That's probably in her basket. The problem is about 90% of that basket is going to cease to exist at some point. Um, and again, that's just a function of the way the markets are going to work. There's going to be changes uh, technologies are going to shift, you know, those type of things. But, you know, Tesla is a good example of this. You know, Tesla is valued more than GM, Ford, and everybody else on the planet right now in terms of the value. 
But these other companies are rapidly gaining market share in the EV space. And, and the problem is that electric vehicles are going to run into a huge problem in about another five years or so in terms of batteries. And then what happens if we shift to a different technology? Let's say we move to hydrogen batteries or something else. Then, you know, this becomes much more problematic. So even Tesla still remains at risk because of just the, the the environment that they are in and the level of competition that's now coming um, really for their market share. So valuations ultimately matter. It doesn't mean that Tesla, and I don't mean that Tesla is going to go out of business. I'm not saying that at all. It's just that they are valued as if they are going to be the only electric vehicle maker on the planet. That's obviously not the case. And the question is, is when does value realign with their actual market share? That's going to be that's going to be the defining moment. So, you know, Tesla could lose 30, 40, 50% of its value very easily and still be a viable company. So this is, so to, to Michael Burry's point, I think that's what Michael Burry is saying is like, Hey, we've seen this before. And when valuations realign, there's a lot of downside risk to her funds. And he's probably right. And again, you know, if you shorted them uh, early this year, you're already ahead of the game by about 30%. So Oh, and you're in an environment where you can pick just about anything and it's going to go up right now. So looking mm -hmm. at that compared to a, a, a normal, quote unquote, environment where you have PPP, you have a lot of uh, different protections for companies that are allowing them to continue. And not to mention, a lot of these companies have been subsidized because of the space that they're in. So at some point, though, this is going to get back to, you know, trying to hit a mosquito with a with a dart <laughs> versus, you know, blindly going out there and actually, you know, doing, doing your job. Right. Right. That's going to be where it becomes much more difficult. I think for this type of, of, of area to invest. Right. Well, and just, you know, thank goodness that you're a professional dart thrower. So that's, that'll work out well. Um, yeah, that may be more difficult than, than said, <laughs> but, it, but it is going to be interesting. We'll, we'll kind of mark this date in history and uh, we'll come back in about a year or so and, and uh, see who was right. Michael Burry or, uh, you know, Kathy Woods. So, it's, I'll put it on my calendar. Yeah, I know. It's, it's just, no, these are those interesting things. And again, this will this will kind of pass and fade. Nobody will pay attention to it. But it'll be interesting to look back down the road and see. Because the one thing that Michael Burry has, and he proved this with the mortgage market, is, and again, as I said, he, when he's convicted to a position, he stays with it. And he will ride this. And people say, oh, he's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. He's wrong. And he's losing money because ARK Investments is going up. That's what happened to him during the mortgage market as well. He eventually won that game. And he'll probably win this game again. But again, nobody will remember this <laughs> except us. We'll bring it back up. Well, I, I tell you, one thing I do appreciate about him, though, is that he's not always bearish and going after something to short, right? Right. Um, yeah, he's not. He's not, have some of these, yeah. he's not Harry Dent, where every time he gets on air, he's going to be, you know, regardless of the situation, he's on air five times a year. Every time he's say the sky is falling, right? Right. No, no, he's, he is very bullish water. He says that water is the thing that you need to be buying more of because uh, they're not making much more of it, apparently. So <laughs> we'll be right back after the break. Don't go away. Yesterday, Marcus uh, tried to sell off a little bit, uh, sold off all the way down to the 20-day moving average, bounced off that, closed about where they opened yesterday. Marcus were down a little bit yesterday, but uh, midday were down a lot more. And again, as I said earlier, there's been a lot of, you know, whenever the market dips, um, buyers show up and that's why money flows are so strong here because every time there's even the hint of a sell-off buyers show up into the markets the question will be at some point is when buyers don't show up and that's where potentially things get a lot more 
difficult. And, you know, when you take a look back, you know, over really over the last year or so since March of 2020, um, the level of the dip where individuals start showing up to buy is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's that's leading to very reduced volatility in the markets. Um, and that level of volatility, which is very low right now, we've got a very low level of volatility. You know, the important thing to watch there is that low volatility leads to high volatility. In other words, at some point, something breaks and all of a sudden you get very, you get a very large jump in volatility and that's where you get a bigger market decline. And again, doesn't mean that happens today, tomorrow, next week, next month, right? It just means those are the, that's the thing you kind of want to watch on. On Monday, post an article of three things to watch for for the next bear market. And that's basically um, the Federal Reserve tapering. It is an inversion, uh, an inversion of the yield curve, and it's the Fed hiking interest rates. Those three things will tell you when the next bear market's coming. We don't have any of those three things yet, right? But uh, the Fed is talking about tapering, and that may be the first kind of shot across the bow to be paying attention. And by the way, it's not all three things. It's any one of the three, right? So you can have an inverted yield curve and the Fed not taper and still get a correction or a recession in the in the markets in the economy. So again, it's not all. You don't, it's not a function of getting all three things. It's one of the three is the thing to be watching for. So uh, that's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. So all right, Danny, uh, kind of wrapping up the show this morning. Um, so you, there's an article out talking about uh, this is from Mohammed El Arian. Uh, talking about why it will take a huge shock to deter risk-taking investors. What is, what's he talking about? Well, essentially, some of the things that you mentioned, I mean, he, his three things are very similar to what, what you're thinking as far as an inverted yield curve, looking at some of these these bigger issues. And so, you know, you think back to last time we had any uh, a hawkish Fed was back in the third and fourth quarter of 2018. And what did we see? We saw a 20% correction in that fourth quarter, mm -hmm. one of the worst since the Great Depression. And, you know, they... You know, Jerome Powell had to come back and kind of walk back his comments because at the time he said, look, we're a long ways from neutral, meaning they're going to have to continue to increase interest rates to keep up with the economy. In October, the market peeled off 10 percent. He comes out in November and says, whoa, 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 we're good. And the, the you know, we took a breather for about a week. And then after that, the, the market went down another 10. Right. So, you know, this is one of the bigger concerns is that at what point do we not see those buyers that we're continuously seeing right now, right? Every time we get a little bit of a, a pullback, somebody jumps in. And I think that, you know, when that sentiment shifts, which we've seen consumer sentiment looks like it's 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 shifting significantly over the last month, um, especially in light of, you know, the Delta variant, a number of, of unknowns, especially now we're going to be seeing that, you know, some of this, uh, the things that the government has been doing to help households out is, is going to be going away unless they pass some new bill. So, you know, unemployment benefits have stopped for a lot of states uh, from the federal level. I think this is going to be a time where uh, you know, this could be make or break in some ways. And that's what his thought is, is that you're going to have to see something bigger happen, though, or uh, people to get out of the market or to start maybe curtail some of the, the risk taking. Right. Well, and again, it could be just something as simple as the Fed starts to taper. And initially what will happen is the markets will say, well, you know, the Fed can taper here and it's OK because, you know, they're still doing 100 billion a month instead of 120 billion. And then it's 80 and that's still OK because it's still 80. But at some point, the market typically then starts to respond because that's less liquidity coming in. But again, it can take some time and that'll be some of the initial 
you know, articles that you'll see published is that, yeah, from the time that the Fed starts tapering, it's generally nine to 12 to 18 months or whatever it is until the market corrects. So you got plenty of time, stay in the markets, right? Don't get out. Um, but again, it's, it's, you know, what happens because of that lack of liquidity? Where does it create a problem in the markets? Is it the credit market? Is it, you know, the, the you know, and, uh, some economic market, et cetera, that starts to struggle. And that's what creates that kind of shot across the bow to investors. But again, I think this all comes down ultimately, you know, to interest rates, the credit market, and it'll be some credit related event that starts to really kind of show up. It'll be an inability for companies to refinance debt in the credit markets or whatever it is. And we have a ton of zombie companies. A lot of these companies that are, you know, in the S&P right now. There's a big chunk of these companies in the S&P and particularly a, a very large chunk of the companies in the Russell 2000 that, you know, survive on debt um, in order just to meet their interest payments. They've got to have access to debt. So, you know, it's that's really, I think, one of the things that we've got to watch the most closely is really what's happening in the credit and the debt markets. I think, you know, the, the big things we've seen and, and so far the Fed or somebody's been there to back it up and at what point does that dynamic shift? And, you know, I think that people have been lulled to sleep thinking that there's always going to be that backdrop or that safety net. I mean, think about this. Last time we saw the inverted yield curve, you know, on, on average, there's a recession 15 months later. We did get one. But it seems like everybody's looked towards the pandemic as being the only reason, whereas we really, I mean, we had significant issues prior to the pandemic. Give us a break to for a real good excuse for a recession, right? Right. Um, and then we were bailed out with the market, the fastest recovery market that we've ever seen. I mean, we, this year we've hit 49 new highs of uh, 49 new highs alone. I mean, that's right. that's remarkable. That's not something that's typical. And so at some point we're going to see this thing change. And that's where I think it's going to be interesting to see where the rubber meets the road in the sense that um, what do investors do at that point? Right. Well, yeah, that's and, and that is right. That is kind of the point, which is. You know what, ha and, and again, it's always the question of what is it that th that triggers this, and then what do invest? How do investors respond? And the answer is we don't know what's going to be the trigger. It'll be something that we're not even paying attention to right now. That's what I said. You know, kind of at the early onset of the show this morning, which is, you know, it's not the Delta variant. Um, we already know about it. Yeah, people are you know getting sick from it. They're you know getting it and vaccinated or not doesn't matter. Um, but it's not really something that the, the markets have already seen that. And they're like, okay, we know what that outcome is. And as long as we don't shut down the economy, which there doesn't seem to be any real demand to do, um, masking is fine. You know, getting people to get vaccinated is fine. That, you know, the markets have, have absorbed that part already. So it'll be something that we really don't know. Afghanistan, you know, terrible outcome of 20 years and $978 billion spent in Af Afghanistan. Um, interesting chart from Statista out this morning. They are 10 times worse off now than they were a decade ago. So, you know, you know, here, you know, 20 years of being in Afghanistan solved nothing, but that's not something that's going to impact the markets. It's a terrible situation, but that's not going to impact credit markets or financial markets. You know, it's, it's, it's not something that we're going to see a disruptive event come out of and the markets are pricing that in as fast as they can right now and, and the markets are telling you that's not the problem so again whatever turns out to be the problem it's not something we're talking about right now yeah that's, that's exactly right
Well, that wraps up the show for this hump day edition of the Real Investment Show. Be sure you buy the new website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Since your questions, comments, emails, whatever you've got, we're more than happy to help you. Our latest newsletters, blog posts, more, it's all there for you. And of course, be sure and get registered for tomorrow's Lunch and Learn on small business plans. So if you're a small business owner, this Lunch and Learn can help you make sure that you retain and recruit top talent. It's all at the website, realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.